Welcome once again to Exploring the Scriptures, presentation of Church History Study with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here now is Dr. Bartholomew. Welcome to uh, our LDS Church History class. Today we're doing 1842-43. It's so good to have you all here and to be a part of what you're studying with the gospel. Today we're talking about growing the growing conflict in Nauvoo. It's 1842. Joseph Smith is 36 years old which is a very young, I can't even remember when I was 36. The following projects are occurring in the many LDS settlements around the area. The Saints live in Nauvoo, but they also live in settlements on both sides of the Mississippi River. So the idea that uh, they just live in Nauvoo is not correct. They're buying and selling land. They're trying to. They're establishing local governments, the Nauvoo Legion, etc. And Joseph is revealing to trusted persons a doctrine of plural marriage which is look at the book, the book of Abraham. Starts with the Wentworth letter. It was never published outside the times and seasons and never did make it uh, for the Book of Mormon. The document also contained 13 statements. In 1842, Joseph wrote the Wentworth letter. Orson Ide and Orson Pratt had already written articles of faith of their own prior to Joseph Smith's. Orson Pratt actually came up with 14 and Orson Hyde wrote them a little differently than Joseph did. It is, however, Joseph's 13 articles of faith that are used in the church today of the Chicago Democrat. He had a friend in New Hampshire who was doing a history of New Hampshire and wanted information about the Mormon Church. John Wentworth went and told Joseph that if he would write a brief history for him, he'd put in the paper exactly how he wrote it. Joseph did so and Wentworth's friends, George Barstow, never used it. It was, however, published in the Times and Seasons and later in our scriptures. It is one of the great documents of the Church, the Thirteen Articles of Faith is. Joseph taught that the Father and the Son looked, like, looked alike, and if you've ever seen one, you've seen the other. He also taught that God would go to all nations prior to the millennium. He taught that he saw the former heavens of America long before he received the plates. He taught that the twelve disciples on the American continent were, were called dis- apostles, not just disciples. He taught this as early as 1832, even though it's 1842 when it was finally published. Although the records had acquired from Michael Taylor in 1835 in Kirtland, Ohio, Joseph was not able to turn his attention to them until 1842 because of constant persecutions and trials. Extracts from the Book of Abraham appeared first in the Times and Seasons and then in the Millennial Star in the summer of 1842. Joseph Smith indicated that more would be forthcoming, but he was unable to continue the translation after 1842. What the Church received, five chapters from the Book of Abraham and the Pearl of Great Price, is the only portion of the original record that existed at that time. So what is the Book of Abraham? Let's talk about it for a minute. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints embraces the Book of Abraham as Scripture. That's pretty big. This book, which is a record of biblical prophet and the patriarch Abraham, recounts how Abraham sought the blessings of the priesthood, rejected the idolatry of his father, covenanted with Jehovah, married Sarai, moved to Canaan and then to Egypt, and received knowledge about the creation. That's a lot. The Book of Abraham largely follows the biblical narrative, but adds important information regarding Abraham's life and his teachings. The Book of Abraham was first published in 1842 and was was canonized as part of the Public Price in 1880. The book originated from from a papyri that Joseph Smith translated beginning in 1835. Many people saw the papyri, but no eyewitness accounts uh, exist of the translation making it impossible to reconstruct the process. We don't know how it happened. Only small fragments of the long papyrus scrolls once in Joseph's possessions exist today. 
I've held them in my hands. I was once invited to the church I was building to see them, and I held them in the, in these in these hands. They're encased in glass, two side, two glass on both sides, and they're not they're, they're about this big. Um, the papyri, however, were very long, and there was five of them. We're gonna look at all five today. The relationship between those fragments and the text of today is largely a matter of conjecture. I've gone to many dis many essays, many people have expounded upon their thoughts and feelings about the about the papyri. We don't know exactly what was on them, nor do we know exactly how they were constructed. There are some good guesses, but that's all they are is guesses. It's important for you to know that. The testimony of the Book of Abraham will not come from studying the papyri, because we don't have them anymore, or the small fragments which we do have. The testimony of the Book of Abraham will come from prayer and from receiving it from Heavenly Father, just like our testimony of the Book of Mormon. The papyri owned by Joseph Smith consists of five documents, four scrolls, which are about ten feet long each, and what's called the hypocephalus. When Joseph purchased the scrolls, the outer edges of the papyrus scrolls were already damaged. To prevent further damage, the outside portions of some of the papyri were separated from their rolls. They were cut, with just with scissors, mounted on paper and placed in glass frames. That's what I've held in my hands. That's what I've seen at the church office building. When Joseph Smith published the book of Abraham in 1842, only one-fourth of what he had translated was published. Unfortunately, the location of the original manuscripts and his translation is presently unknown, and thus three-quarters of his translation is lost. Three-quarters. You wonder why the book ends abruptly in the middle of chapter 5. It's because that's all that was published. The rest, we don't know where it's at. Now, this might be a problem for some as they think about the book of Abraham. Well, God, we don't even have to, we don't have to do that three-fourths. The important thing is that we feast upon the word, the, 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 the part of the account that we do have, and wait patiently for the Lord to help us find the rest. Um, that's really all we can do. The four scrolls were called the Scroll of Hor, and we have about a little teeny piece of the end of it. There's the Scroll of Seminus. We have a little piece in the middle of it. There's a Scroll of Nuifianub. That's Nuifianub. We have a little teeny piece in the middle. And then we have the Scroll of Anophilus, which we don't have any of that. And then there's the Hypocephalus, which we do have. We do know some things about the translation process, but we, there's many things we do not know. The word translation typically assumes an expert knowledge of multiple languages. Joseph Smith claimed no expertise in any language, not even in English. He rarely, rarely acknowledged that he was one of the weak things of the world called for them to speak the words sent to him from heaven. Speaking of the translation of the Book of Mormon, the Lord said, You can't write that which is sacred to be given you from me. The Lord was very clear to Joseph that he would not be able to write down the Book of the Book of Mormon unless it was given to him by the Lord. The same principles apply to the Book of Abraham. The Lord did not require Joseph Smith to have a knowledge of Egyptian or, or Greek or any other language. By the gift of the power of God, Joseph Smith received knowledge of the life and teachings of Abraham and recorded them in the Book of Abraham for us. Joseph's translations took a variety of forms. Some of his translations, like the Book of Abraham of Mormon, utilized ancient documents in his possession. Other times, his translations were not based on any physical known records. Joseph's translations of portions of the Bible, for example, include restoration of original text, harmonization of contradictions within the Bible itself, and inspired commentary inspired by the prophet Joseph Smith. 
A common objection to the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, I'm sorry, the Book of Abraham, is that the manuscripts are not as old enough to have been written by Abraham, who lived almost 2,000 years before Christ. That is true. Joseph Smith never claimed the papyri were written by Abraham, or originated from Abraham, or were even owned by Abraham. Just like we have the scriptures on our phone, that doesn't mean our phone owned the ancient plates that the Book of Mormon was on. It's just that it's, it's, it's a copy. Ancient records are after transmitted as copies. There's copies of copies of copies of copies. We know from the way that the Bible came to us that the Bible is a is a mass amount of copies, and we don't even know how many times it was copied, or who did the copying, or how many years it was copied by. The record of Abraham could be could be, have been edited by later writers such as the Book of Mormon, Prophet historians Mormon and Mormon revised the writings of earlier peoples. So the Book of Abraham might not even have been written by Abraham himself; it could have been by somebody else. While translating, the Prophet Joseph Smith may have been working with sections of papyri that were later destroyed. Thus, it is likely futile to assess Joseph's ability to translate papyri when what we have now is only a fraction of papyri he had in his possession, and it may have been edited at that. It is also possible that Joseph Smith's careful examination of the writings led him to receive revelation about key events and teachings in the life of Abraham. Much of it, much he had earlier received a revelation about the life of Moses while studying the Bible. So it may have been, the whole book may be a revelation that Joseph Smith received while studying the life of Abraham. Although we do not know exactly how Joseph Trans Smith translated the book of Abraham, we do know that the translation was done through the gift and power of God, just like the book of Mormon was. So what it boils down to is whether or not you believe Joseph Smith was a prophet or not. You believe, if you believe he was a prophet, and then he had the power to receive revelation from God, then the book is that revelation. And whether it was a translation verbatim, or whether he read it and got ideas that were later put into concrete writing as he received revelation about them, doesn't really matter if you believe Joseph Smith was a prophet, which I want you to know that I know Joseph Smith was a prophet. It took me years to, to gain that testimony. That was one of the last testimonies I gained. I gained a testimony of almost everything else first. For some reason, I could not get a testimony of Joseph Smith until I read all of his writings. Once I had read all of his writings, the powerful witness came to me, and I knew that he was a prophet, and the, the, the things he wrote were written were true. I went to bring my testimony to you of that. I know Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. He was a simple man. He had a lot of problems in his life, but he was a prophet, and he was called by God, and I went to bear my test Christ. Amen. The Book of Abraham clarifies the idea that life did not begin at birth, as is commonly believed. Prior to going to earth, individuals exist. So many of the doctrines that we believe come from the Book of Abraham, believe it or not. Jesus Christ, the other spirits in organizing the earth out of materials or pre-existing matter, not explaining the world or how it happened in the Bible, believe it or not. Our problem isn't in the Bible, how much how much of our Latter-day beliefs come from the things that we find. It's crucial the plan of happiness of God, the happiness of God would provide for his children. It says in the book of Abraham, upon the faithful. Nowhere in the Bible is the purpose and potential of life stage so clearly as in the book of Abraham. The papyri, and this is often confusing to, to the reader, I'm trying to go to a man named Antonio Labolo. He was Italian, and he exhumed the papyri from Egypt, who later sold them in America to a man named Michael Chandler. And I think all of you have heard of Michael Chandler in what they called peep shows, where he would show where people would be given a peep or a look for a, a nickel or a quarter. Here, there was a man in in, in Ohio that was interested in ancient documents. He learned that his name was Joseph Smith, and he came to, to Ohio 
to see if Joe Smith wanted to purchase these documents. Joe Smith didn't have enough money to buy them. They were selling them for $2,400, which doesn't sound like a lot of money today. But if you times it by 50, that's how much it was worth back then. 50 times what it's worth today. So Joe Smith found the money with a man named Simon Andrews and Joseph Cole. And they together helped him uh, buy these papyri. He used them to translate. Again, three quarters of the translation has been lost. But then he died and left them to his mother, Lucy Mack Smith who showed them in the in her house in Nauvoo as for also for a peep show or a, a, for a peep for 25 cents a peep which was a lot of money back then when sister smith died they fell into the hands of Emma Smith Emma Smith Bitterman Louis Bitterman her husband and Joe Smith the 3rd and they didn't know what to do with them so they wanted to get rid of them too for money so they sold them to a man named Abel Coombs you know what happened after that is difficult to tell Abel donated some material to the St. Louis Museum, which became the Wood Museum, which was burned in the Chicago Fire. Did he did he give all of it to him, to them? Did he some of it, none of it? We don't know for sure. He also left some of the material, of, of how much we don't know, with a woman named Charlotte Weaver Huntsman, who gave them to give it to her son and his wife, the Husers. They donated the material to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and they called the Church of Christ Latter-day Saints and says, we've got this book, would you be interested in looking at it? When we went back to look at it, the only thing that was there was the scraps encased in glass, which we have today. The rest of the book, we don't know what happened to it. It may have been burned in the Chicago fire, maybe in somebody's egg somewhere. We don't know for sure where it's, where it's at. Joseph began translating the book of Abraham in July of 1835, on the 3rd of July when Michael Chandler arrived in Curtin with the mummies. On the 6th of July, he issued a certificate to Joseph that he had sent him the, they had sold the material to him and the translation began. Joseph Smith spent most of July of 1835 translating the Book of Abraham. In October of 1835, with Oliver Cowdery and W.W. Hills, he received the revelation about the system of astronomy, which is a facsimile number two. Joseph recommences the translating of the book and, and with Warren Parrish as his scribe. In February of 1842, that's 1835, that's when the translation occurred. Then there's persecution. For the, th- the, the publication doesn't occur until February of 1842. From February of 1842 to March of 1842, what we have now is translated, was translated and put, was published in the Times and Seasons, and that's the reason we have it. The source document for our current Book of Abraham is the Times and Seasons newspaper in Nauvoo because that's the only place we can find that it was published. So fortunately, some of the newspapers were saved and we have the translation that was done up to that point. That's all we have at the, to that point. After the Latter-day Saints left Nauvoo, the Egyptian artifacts remained behind, as we mentioned. His family sold the papyri mummies in 1856. The papyri were divided and sold to various places. The historians believe the most were destroyed in the Chicago Fire of 1871. We don't know that for sure, though. Ten papyrus fragments once in Joseph's possessions ended up in the Metropolitan Museum in, in New York City, and that, those are the ones I felt in my hand. In 1967, the museum transferred these fragments to the church, which subsequently published them in the church magazine in the Primunera. And if you have one of those old copies of the Primunera, you have the the ten pieces of the fragments are on the outside edge, are on the cover, front and back of the book. The discovery of the papyrus fragments renewed the debate about Joseph's translation. 
The fragments include one vignette or illustration that appears in the book of Abraham as facsimile number one. Long before the fragments were published by the church, some Egyptologists had said that Joseph's explanations of the various elements of these facsimiles did not match their interpretations of, the, of these drawings. This is a real problem. Joseph had published the facsimiles as freestanding drawings cut off from the hieroglyphs or, or heriatic her, her, characters that originally surrounded the, the, the vignettes. The discovery of the fragments meant that the readers could now see the hieroglyphs and characters immediately surrounding the vignette that became facsimile number one. If you look in your book of Abraham, you'll see facsimile number one and the, just, and the explanation of it there. None of the characters in the papyrus fragments mentioned Abraham's name nor any of the events recorded in the book of Abraham. Mormon and non-Mormon image Egyptologists agree that the characters in the fragments do not match the translation given in the book of Abraham, though... There is not unanimity even among non-Mormon scholars about the proper interpretation of the vignettes of these fragments. Now, as I've had a chance to think about this, it occurred to me that the fragments that we have remaining wouldn't have the Book of Abraham because Joseph cut them off, put them in glass, and set them aside. It seems to me that the part he translated came from the parts that we don't have. So I was not surprised at all when I found out that the fragments don't have the Book of Abraham on them because it seemed to me that Joseph cut them off put them in glass and set them aside and didn't use them as part of the translation process. Scholars have identified the papyrus fragments as parts of standard funerary texts that were deposited with mummified bodies. These fragments date to between the 3rd century BCE and the 1st century CE, long after Abraham lived. Moreover, documents initially composed of one context were repackaged for another context or purpose. Illustrations one connects, once connected with Abraham could have either drifted or been dislodged from the original context and reinterpreted hundreds of years later in terms of burial practices in a later period of Egyptian history. Who knows? The opposite could also be true. Illustration with no connection to Abraham anciently could, by revelation, shed light on the life and teachings of this prophetic figure, of which we only have the insights that are in the book of Abraham. Some have assumed that the hieroglyphics adjacent to the surrounding facsimile must be the source for the book of the text of Abraham for the text of the book of Abraham. That, my friends, is not a clear assumption. This claim rests on the assumption that a vignette and its adjacent text must be associated with its meaning. In fact, it was not uncommon for ancient Egyptian vignettes to be placed some distance from their associated commentary, which I heard that taught by a BOA professor who studied this for many years. The details of the Book of Abraham is consistent with various details found in non-biblical stories of Abraham that circulated in the ancient world around the time the papyri were likely created. This is an important piece. I want you to understand that the people that are producing the material I'm going to share with you right now are not religious people. They don't study the Book of Abraham or anything else as a religious text. They've just as they're, as, as they've gone through, if they've gone through documents and uh, found in Egypt, they've made these they made these commonalities with the Book of Abraham. Number one, in the Book of Abraham, God teaches Abraham about the sun, the moon, and the stars. He said, quote, I show these things unto thee before you go into Egypt. Quote, uh, end quote. The Lord says, quote, as you may declare all of these words. End quote. Ancient texts repeatedly refer to Abraham in history BCE, wrote that Abraham taught astronomy and other sciences to the Egyptian priests. That's options about the stars. 2. A film with an illustration similar to effectively one in the book of Abraham. Now, we can't make that kind of stuff up. We can't go out and find that. That's just simply been found and his train was delivered by an angel. Now, tell me how that story appears in their history when they did, did not get it from the book of Abraham.
Finally, later in this, in this text, Abraham typed non-religious documents. All the foregoing was taken from, quote, translations and histories of the Book of Abraham, Gospel Topics, Essays. Now, we're going to shift major gears. I've told you what I feel like I need you to know about the Book of Abraham. Now we're going to talk about the apostasy of John C. Bennett. John C. Bennett is an interesting character in church history. He comes into Nauvoo as a ranking official in the Missouri State government, uh, takes over the the lead of the church in becoming a, a city in Nauvoo. Church serves as a general authority, only to be discovered that the real reason that he came to Nauvoo was to seduce women, to have Sarah and finally convinces Joseph Smith to try him for his membership. He is, he's excommunicated, and he spends the rest of his life traveling around the United States telling everyone the reason that he went to Nauvoo in the first place was to find out about the Mormons so he could go and tell the world about the Mormons. Everything he says is a lie. He ends up becoming probably the worst enemy the church has in the 19th century. In the April 1841 General Conference, he was presented before the church as an assistant president until President Rigdon's health should be restored. So he takes Sidney Rigdon's place. For a time, he was the prophet's companion, confidant, and advisor. Rumor confirmed by Hiram Smith that he had been a, he had a wife and children in Ohio that he had just abandoned, that he had been an abusive spouse and a parent. He had claimed being single when he arrived in Nauvoo and was courting several women at the time. In fact, he was having sex with several women at the same time. He was found guilty of abusing his position in the First Presidency and perverting the doctrine of plural marriage by committing adultery with anyone he could seduce, claiming it was sanctioned by Joseph Smith. This was scandalous. This was terrible. This was a uh, an ache in the church. His plot to assassinate Joseph Smith failed when he arranged a mock battle between two brigades of the Nova Legion and Joseph barely missed the bullet. By following the spirit, Joseph ascertained his designs and avoided death, but that's that was a barely. Ben's personal morality was discovered. He pled with the brother not to expose him and they were persuaded twice not to do so. Eventually, however, he was excommunicated from the church. He was also cashiered from the Legion, forced to resign as the mayor of the city, and expelled from the Masonic fraternity. This was a this was a serious blow to John C. Bennett and his personal ego and pride. With his reputation in Nauvoo ruined, he bitterly left the city and took up lecturing against the prophet and the other leaders of the church. He claimed he had only become a Mormon to bring light to bring to light the alleged illicit conduct of the prophet Joseph Smith. And people, believe it or not, believed him. On top of all this, there are political complications in Nauvoo, serious ones between the Whigs and the Democrats. The Democrats spoke for Jeffersonian democracy, expansion and freedom of the common man from interference with the government of financial monopolies. The Democrats f- promoted power-based lay in the rural South and the West and among, the northern, and among northern urban workers. The Whigs, on the other hand, were the heirs to federalism. They favored a strong and for national government in the economy and supportive active social reform. The Whigs' power base lay in the, no- in the North and the Old Northwest among the voters who benefited from increased commercialization among Southern planters and urban merchants. Political rivalries were developing between the Latter-day Saints and their neighbors in Western Illinois. These difficulties stemmed from volatile frontier politics where the inter-party opposition was intense and feelings were easily inflamed. The problem was intensified because Democrats and Whigs were nearly equal in the state of Illinois, 
although their philosophies were very different, their numbers were nearly equal. The Democrats took control of the state government in 1838, but the Whigs had retained a narrow edge in western Illinois when the Saints began to arrive in 1839. Both parties hoped that the new citizens would help their cause, of course. Nauvoo was on the very border of Illinois, on the river. In fact, most of the Saints lived on the other side of the river, which was in Iowa. And they were, Nauvoo was carefully situated by two key cities, Carthage and Warsaw, which these we're going to talk about right now. Hancock County became particularly explosive as the increasing number of members of the church were threatened by political balances of power. Warsaw and Carthage became the source of the original anti-Mormon settlement in Illinois. Thomas B. Sharp, editor of the Warsaw Signal, was invited to attend the cornerstone laying of the Nauvoo Temple. He was invited to promote goodwill, but he was with a very suspicious eye. His inviting him actually backfired. He became convinced that Mormonism was more than a religion. Joe Smith intended to build up the kingdom of God on earth as a political power, join the state and church, a theocratic social order the saints called Zion. He formed an anti-Mormon political party and was successful in turning both national political parties against the saints in Nauvoo, both the Whigs and the Democrats. Judge Stephen A. Douglas had befriended the saints. He was his friend to Joe Smith. In June 1841, when Joe Smith was arrested as a fugitive from the state of Missouri, he was Judge Douglas dismissed the case after hearing two, tears of, two days of tear-jerking testimony from members of the church regarding the atrocities in Missouri. While this won him the gratitude of the saints, serious suspicions regarding his support of the saints began to grow in western Illinois. Later in 1842, with the undeniable aid of Mormon vote, the Democratic candidate for, grand, for governor, Thomas L. Ford, won the election over Joseph Duncan, the Whig candidate and an avowed opponent of the Saints. Joseph's brother and apostle William Smith ran for state legislature against Thomas Sharp and suddenly defeated him, causing more tension in Hancock County. Sharp's defeat intensified his antagonism, and he brought his attack to over a 10-county area cried for extermination or expulsion of the Mormons from the United States of America. Meanwhile, unfortunately, as if the tide was against us, Liberty W. Boggs, the former governor of Missouri, was wounded by a would-be assassin. He, of course, accused Joseph Smith and tried to extradite him back to Missouri. John C. Bennett testified to Missouri authorities that Orrin Porter Rockwell had been sent to do by Joseph Smith, even though Orrin Porter Rockwell was clearly in Nauvoo. In, by July of 1842, Boggs appeared before Justice of the Peace in Independence, Missouri, to charge Orrin Rockwell with attempted murder and Joseph Smith as an accessory before the fact. Governor Thomas Reynolds of Missouri then convinced Governor Thomas Carlin of Illinois to send officers to arrest Porter Rockwell and Joseph Smith and bring them to Missouri to stand trial. Joseph knew that if he was taken to Missouri, he would be killed. He was temporarily freed and went into hiding. Rockwell fled to Pennsylvania under a fictitious name. Letters and affidavits from the Saints failed to persuade Governor Carlin of the impropriety of the extradition order, and he continued to offer reward money for, their, for the capture of these two men. Joseph was freed by legal means by the help of the newly elected Governor Ford, but Rockwell was arrested in St. Louis and spent 10 months in jail, but was finally freed by, with, on no evidence. John C. Bennett arrived, revived old charges of treason against Joseph Smith, and Governor Ford was persuaded to extradite Joseph Smith to Missouri for trial. Joseph was arrested by Missouri law enforcement officials in Illinois while on vacation to Emma's sister's house. Those arresting Joseph were arrested by Nauvoo officials, and Joseph was once again sent free. 
ready with aid by aid by Illinois politicians on a promise to vote for them. However, political squabbling over the one vote leads to trouble in the state. Both parties will become anti-Mormon. So Joseph decides to submit himself to the law. The U.S. Constitution only allowed extradition of a runaway criminal who committed a crime in one state and fled to another. Hence, the order to take Joseph from Illinois to Missouri was illegal, since no one ever accused, nor was there evidence, that Joseph had committed any crime in Missouri and then fled to Illinois. And when Emma Smith understood this as she studied the law and communicated such to Governor, v- Governor Ford via letter, eventually, the illegality of the extradition order became the attention of the U.S. District Attorney Justin Butterfield. Upon the advice of the Illinois Supreme Court, Joseph presented himself in Springfield, Mass. in Springfield, Illinois, before Nathaniel Pope, the U.S. Circuit Judge Court for hearing. With the aid of Butterfield, Pope discharged Joseph on January 5, 1843, and the charges were finally settled. In historical context, we can look at this period this way. In early October of 1843, Emma and Joseph hosted a luxurious feast for a pleasure party, celebrating the opening of their hotel in their newly expanded house, the Nauvoo House. One hundred couples dined at a well-spread board. After the cloth was removed, the hotel's proprietor, Robert D. Foster, chaired the event, proposed toasts. One was to General Joseph Smith, whether we view him as a prophet at the head of the church, a general at the head of the legion, a mayor at the head of the city, or a landlord at the head of this table. Another was to the Nauvoo Legion, a faithful friend of the Invincibles, ready at all times to defend their country, and a third toast was to Nauvoo Charter, a legislative decree for the protection of the saints. The longest toast was to Nauvoo itself, the great emporium of the West, the center of all centers, a city of three, three years' growth, a population of 18,000 souls, congregated from the four quarters of the globe, embracing the intelligence of all nations with industry, frugality, economic virtue, and brotherly love, unsurpassed in any age of the world, a suitable home for the saints, truly the great place to live. At the end of the proceedings, Joseph offered his gratitude for the pleasing prospects that surround him, and Foster thanks to Gav- thanked the guests on his behalf. Ironically, the happy occasion presaged the coming conflicts. The institutions that Foster celebrated were the very ones the anti Mormons most feared the Nauvoo Charter, the Nauvoo Legion, the broadest combination of religious and civil authority. Even the growth of Nauvoo disturbed other Hancock County citizens who were fearful of the Mormon domination of the Poles. Foster's toast used the familiar language of boisterism. Hundreds of small Western American towns aimed at building a great emporium. But only Nauvoo had a prophet as a mayor, uniting religion and, and the state. Bringing God into the government created an alliance most Americans had rejected after the Revolutionary War. The Nauvoo merger was one was all the more offensive because Joseph commanded the military force, the Invincibles, of Foster's Toast, and possessed a city charter that gave the Mormons control over municipal courts. By 1843, it was clear the combination would not be tolerated by the United States of America. Anti-Mormon committees throughout the country were calling for state intervention. Some were, already ta- some were already talking of expulsion. But despite the growing opposition, Joseph would not back down. He was going to create a theocracy. A religious society and a religious government had been his goal for 13 years. Instead of creating parishes, he built cities. Instead of leaving people to worship where they lived, he gathered them. He came for a new social order pattern after the order of heaven. Truly, he was prophetic in his view. Mormon's sufferings and his months in prison had not weakened his resolve at all. The final campaign of his last six months was to frame the constitution of a political kingdom of God. 
Thomas Sharp repeatedly attacked the church and accused leaders of every crime imaginable. He also promoted the anti-Mormons party's day of fasting and prayer on Saturday, the 9th of March, in an effort to speedily bring down the false prophet Joseph Smith. The anti-Mormon party in Carthage appointed a grand wolf hunt in Hancock County for the same day, which was repeated and was no more than an excuse to pillage and burn LDS homes. Meanwhile, Joseph had joined efforts with Governor Ford to improve relations with Western Illinois citizens. However, Thomas Sharp continued his attack throughout the war, through the Warsaw Signal and hinted that trouble was brewing between Joseph Smith and some members that had a breach and that a breach was imminent. By May of 1844, the Latter-day Saints were once again embroiled in an ir- apparently irreconcilable, ir- irreconcilable conflict with their neighbors. There are many reasons for this. Politically, the Saints were alienated from nearly everyone else in Illinois. Other communities were jealous of Nauvoo's economic power and political autonomy. Many people in Illinois feared the power of the Nauvoo Legion. The Masons were disturbed by alleged irregularities of the order in Nauvoo, and there was a general distaste among the people for the peculiar Mormon doctrines and practices which had been misrepresented and taught by John C. Bennett and others. Despite these factors, the Saints still might have been able to maintain peace if it had not been for the apostasy developing within the Church. And happily, all signs pointed towards eventual violence. On the 29th of May, 1844, Thomas Sharp told his readers that, quote, he would not be surprised to hear that Joseph's death by the violent means in a short time. So, while we reach a, an end of a particular period in church history, we also reach the end of a particularly glorious time in terms of revelation. Next time, we'll talk about the eventual destruction of Joseph Smith and the city of Nauvoo and the, the things that led to that. But the rebuilding of the, of the saints by Brigham Young. I want to bear my testimony that I know the church is true. Joseph Smith was trying to establish Zion. He wasn't trying to establish a city or a state. He was trying to establish Zion. That's what he was trying to do. While it was not tolerated at that time in the United States of America, it's becoming more and more tolerated now. I leave this testimony with you. I say it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for being with us today for another segment of Dr. Bartholomew's insightful review of aspects of church history. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to listen to www.goldengems.net, where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when music was music in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week for another episode in church history with Dr. Bartholomew.